Hello, and welcome to the Hidden Gnome Podcast. Before we go any deeper, I thought I'd take a moment to let you know where we're heading. Today, we dive into one of the stories that Will White sent to his mailing list subscribers at some point in the last few years. All of these short stories are tucked away inside one or another of his worlds. Maybe Cradle, possibly Elder Empire, but probably Traveler's Gate. If you have never heard of those worlds before, then you do not have the training to extract full meaning from this journey. You may continue if you wish, but you may not reach true enlightenment. You'll know you were fully prepared for the story if we emerge from this podcast and you suddenly begin levitating and or glowing. Now, tighten the straps on your pack and raise your torch high, because we're delving into places unknown. Don't worry, most of you will probably make it out alive. Deathmatch 1. The Deathing Begins. Iteration 000. Terminus. In the endless void, there is a stage. It is a perfect circle of flawless gray stone, ten kilometers across. It has no features but the eight towers floating outside the stage, spaced evenly around the perimeter, each glowing with purple runes. The stage is outside space, outside time, outside fate and consequence. It is where the Abaddon come to settle their debts, and their bets. This arena, in the world called Terminus, is where immortals play their games. Match number one. Simon versus Urziah. Simon opened his eyes in a circular room of stone. Gray stone floor, gray stone walls, ceiling high above. He was trapped in a hollow cylinder, and he didn't remember walking here. Is this Valinol? he wondered. Kayla's cool, clear voice answered him. You should know better than that. Did you get here through a door? I don't remember. A Valinol room that devoured the memories of those who entered sounded terrifying, but also entirely possible. His nigh cloak hung from his shoulders with the comforting weight of Kayla in one inside pocket and his mask in the other. His chains were down to one link, cold and rough against the back of his hands. He briefly touched his powers with his mind. Steel and essence were full, so he stopped checking. He should be able to call anything he needed. But Valenhall felt somehow distant. If he was in the territory itself, he should have felt home. Not safe, because the house was never safe, but as though he shared some connection to his surroundings. I don't remember either, Kayla said firmly, as though she'd scored a point somehow. The house would not take memories from me. So it does take memories, Simon noted, just not from her. That would be good to remember when he returned from wherever this was. The idea that he'd been magically transported to some other location didn't trouble him much. Soon enough, he would figure out which territory this was. And then, one way or another, he'd carve his way out. A bell rang at deafening volume, shaking the whole tower. Or maybe it was the tower that rang. Entertainment match, a voice whispered in his brain. Who is that? Kayla asked, panicked. Who's there? Simon, son of Kalman, you will fight to the death. All consequences will be reversed. The new voice spoke with more than just words. Thought, images, nuance, meaning flowed straight into Simon's head. He would fight here until he died, whereupon he would be returned to the same time and place he'd left. 
unharmed and unaware, with no memories. That hardly seemed fair. If he had to fight to the death, he should at least earn a prize for winning. You face Urziah Woodsman, the voice said, and Simon's thoughts shook with the name. Facts popped into his awareness as though he'd known them all along. A tall man, with dark skin and flowing blonde hair, Urziah could almost have passed for a half-blooded Damascan, except that his tan was clearly the result of years spent in the sun. Maybe a full Damascan, then, whose work kept him outside. His work. Simon saw an arena filled with sand, its seats vast tiers of pale stone. He'd seen similar structures in Endros before, but nothing nearly so huge. Urziah faced one opponent after another, his dark hatchets flashing, blood caking the sand. He gained a new collection of scars and lost parts of his armor. Every time he did, he replaced it with a mismatched piece until it looked like he cobbled together his protection from a dozen different corpses. That was almost true. Two details stayed the same. His weapons, those dark hatchets, and the huge golden snakeskin tied around his left arm. He changes his weight. The fact settled on Simon, sudden and true. That seemed irritating to deal with, but not too deadly. More than that, Kayla said, pleased to have noticed something he missed. He moves like a Valenhall traveler. Simon hadn't realized, but she was right. He was so used to fighting opponents with superhuman strength that Urziah's hadn't registered. The voice had left him a lot of knowledge, but nothing terribly specific. He had a general sense for Urziah's strength, but that was all. How heavy could he make himself and still move? Did he run the risk of crushing himself, or did his body grow stronger at the same rate? When his hatchet split an opponent in half, was that raw physical power or the effect of the hatchet itself? He could see the broad shape of Urziah's fights in the arena, enough to know that the man had an impressive track record, but not enough to make out the important details. Did he like to attack first or wait for an opening? Did he lean on any obvious habits? Had he ever fought Valenhall travelers before? The tower rang again, then again, and Simon found himself facing one stretch of wall. It looked the same as any other section, featureless and gray, but something on the other side seemed to tug at him. Ready, the voice said again, and Simon settled onto the balls of his feet. He summoned Mithra vertically because there wasn't enough room to hold the weapon to the side. The long blade gleamed and the line of gold running from hilt to tip shone bright, which made him briefly wonder where the light was coming from. Something was reflecting off his sword, but there was nothing like a torch in here. The ringing of the bell sped up until ending in one final, booming crash. Begin, the voice said, and the front half of the tower vanished. Holding steel, Simon dashed through the space where the wall used to be. He ran along a bridge just wide enough for one, and beneath him, nothing. Endless, black nothing, stretching off into infinity. Or maybe there was a hard floor waiting for him down there, no way to tell. The bridge ran only a few paces from the tower to what he knew was his arena, a miles-wide plain of smooth gray rock. Simon knew it served the same purpose as the sand-strewn Colosseum that had hosted Urziah, though that knowledge must have been another tidbit left by the mysterious voice. 
Simon jogged forward, drawing a bare minimum of steel, sword resting on his shoulder. He'd run into Urzaya eventually if he followed the compulsion urging him forward. And when they met, they would fight to the death. He knew that as well as he knew his own name. When the voice spoke, it was like hearing the words of the Maker. What it said would come to pass as surely as the sun would rise. And both fighters would be returned to life afterwards, wouldn't they? That was a better deal than he'd ever gotten in Valenhall. That's assuming the voice is telling the truth, Kayla pointed out. But even she didn't sound as though she expected a lie. Simon wouldn't believe someone telling him the voice could lie. But even if it was, what could he do to anyone with the power to take him out of his territory and summon him here without memory of anything in between? That level of power was beyond him. Under usual circumstances, he might have rebelled anyway. Why would he cooperate with someone who had cornered him into fighting for their entertainment? He would rather toss himself off the side of the stage and ruin their plans. He remembered himself as someone who would feel that way, but he didn't feel it. Even Kayla didn't suggest rebelling or fighting back. Perhaps the voice had taken that from him. He jogged for a few miles before he saw someone in front of him, a yellow-haired man with something shiny and golden wrapped around one arm. As Simon approached further, he made out the black hatchets that Urzaya was juggling, one in each hand, and the broad smile on the man's face. We have the advantage in reach, at least, Kayla noted. We can't be sure how strong he is, so we have to- Oh no, he's coming. Simon didn't have time to get into a proper stance. He didn't have time to think, and he didn't have the presence of mind to call on his nigh essence. He dropped. A black hatchet, which a moment ago had been a minute detail on a distant figure, passed through space at shoulder height. Urzaya's grin, with its missing teeth that had given it a friendly or even goofy cast at a distance, looked more like a shark's menacing smile now that he was looming over Simon with weapons in hand. And Simon had seriously underestimated how big the man was. It looked like he could swallow Simon and have room left over for seconds. Simon turned the drop into a roll, drawing on the nigh essence as he did. He swept Mithra in an arc to push Urzaya back, sure that the gladiator would be pressing him for a second hit. Even with the essence in him, he was sure he'd be too late. The gold and silver sword slammed into a black hatchet blade and stopped. Sparks flew, casting orange shadows on Urzaya's scarred face. His smile grew broader. You are strong, yes? Stronger than you look. This is good. I would hate to break you in half with my bare hands because this would be boring, and I want to give a good show. Isaiah Woodsman hadn't pursued with a second attack after all, which was what Simon would have done. He'd stood in place, waiting for Simon to recover. And now he was holding off Simon's steel-fueled attack with one hand. His muscles bulged beneath plates of hardened leather, veins standing out on exposed skin, but the arm remained steady as a rock, and his smile never slipped. Urzaya seemed to be waiting for Simon's response, which suited Simon. He could wait as long as he wanted. Left side, Kayla said. He's missing an eye. As chains slid up his arms, Simon drew deeply on essence and steel. The world slowed to a crawl, but Simon almost couldn't tell. This endless arena of gray stone and black night was frozen already. 
Gathered steel ran through his limbs like ice, and with all the power in his body, he twisted and heaved. Mithra was still locked against Urziah's blade, and Simon's push came in an instant. The dragon's fang continued its strike, shoving against the dark hatchet with enough force that it should have overwhelmed Urziah, pushing the weapon aside and cleaving the gladiator in half. In the slow, crawling world of the nigh essence, Simon saw every detail of what happened. He almost wished he couldn't. For an instant, Urziah's arm did start to collapse as expected. Then it halted as though suddenly the huge man's muscles had turned to stone. He turned to face Simon's sword, the movement quick even to Simon's vision, and leaned into the force. So instead of slicing him in two, the attack with all of Simon's power behind it simply slid the man backwards on the stone for a pace or two. Then he ground to a halt. Whoa, very good, the woodsman said, but his words seemed stretched and distorted under the effects of the nigh essence. Simon couldn't afford to drop the essence to hear the man talk. His chains were climbing dangerously fast as it was, and he'd lose the essence soon. He pulled the blade back, then stepped forward and extended in a thrust. It was so fast that his motion should have been nothing but a dark blur to Urziah's vision, his sword a sheet of silver and gold. Urziah knocked the thrust aside with a simple circle of his hatchet. You are very fast, he said, and this time his voice sounded normal to Simon, which meant that it must have sounded very strange indeed to any spectators, assuming that someone was watching. But I have seen faster. Pull back, Kalis shouted but Simon didn't react in time. The woodsman slammed a foot down on Mithra. The sword tugged Simon down, dragging him into a stumble, and Urziah's fist, still holding the hilt of a hatchet, met his cheekbone. It was like a warhammer slamming into the side of his skull. Simon flipped over and around, skidding across the stone on his shoulder as he slid several paces to the side. Get up, Kalis sent but even her mental voice warbled through a haze of pain. He's walking over, Simon, get up. Simon fumbled for his sword for a moment before realizing it was in his hand. Urziah looked down on him from a few paces away, idly flipping one of his axes. Do you know who you remind me of? No, of course you do not, so I will tell you. I once fought a black watchman, crafty opponent, sneaky, and his nails are... Do you know about the nails? It doesn't matter. He was quick, too, like you are. I think he must have been soul-bound. He fought as one who was used to facing beasts, not men. He moved in simple ways, and I could see them all. Urziah caught the hatchet as it fell and met Simon's eyes, giving him a shrug. I am afraid the fight was not very entertaining. This time, I feel I should warn you so that we can do better. The ringing in Simon's head had almost subsided, and his chains were already creeping up to his elbows. The nigh essence was just a cold breath in his lungs now, the world speeding up. He'd used almost his entire supply in only a few seconds. The mask, Kayla sent. She never suggested the mask. But after all, the voice had said all consequences would be reversed. If it could undo death... Simon supposed curing incarnation would be a small task. He reached a hand into his cloak, and Urziah vanished.
Simon had a moment of panic before he caught sight of his opponent. High overhead, almost impossibly high, as though he'd taken flight instead of merely jumping. His hatchets were spread to either side like wings. Had he given up? Urziah was falling straight down. All Simon had to do was plant Mithra's hilt on the ground, blade facing up, and kneel down to wait. Urziah would impale himself. Wait, Simon, Kayla said, voice panicked, and Simon remembered. With one hand, he swept Mithra at the falling gladiator. With the other, he lifted the mask. He made it just in time. The mask sealed itself in place, accompanied by the flood of endless power that meant he was connected to Valenhall. His chains immediately spread past his elbows, twisting around his biceps. His blade met Urziah, who twisted in the air to catch it on a hatchet. It was like Simon had swung into a falling mountain. The strike didn't change Urziah's trajectory in the slightest, and if he hadn't managed to get the mask on, Simon wouldn't have had the time or strength to react. That one blow would have been his last move, and the woodsman would have slammed into him with both feet. Simon would have splattered like an overripe fruit under a horse. Instead, at the first touch of resistance, Simon doubled down on steel and essence. Once more, he shoved in that tiny fraction of time, pushing against Urziah. And the gladiator's fall changed, following the arc of Simon's swing. Simon pressed against him, slamming him down into the stone. He expected the stone to crack and most of the woodsman's skeleton to crumble to powder. They both may have been stronger than any human had a right to be, but bone could only take so much. With a sound like two boulders smacking into one another, Urziah slammed against the ground, and neither he nor the arena showed the slightest sign of damage. The gladiator pushed to his knees, rising to his feet. He shook his head like a dog emerging from a river. Dangerous, dangerous, that was not your- Still holding on to the full extent of his steel and his essence, Simon swept his sword through Urziah's neck. The dragon's fang actually stopped for a moment on the edge of Urziah's leather breastplate, giving Simon a moment of fear. What kind of leather could stop Tartarus steel, even for half a second? But Mithra did pass through, lodging halfway through the woodsman's neck. Blood spurted from the wound, and Simon pulled his weapon back, releasing the mask at the same time. This was a trick he'd learned only recently, letting the mask go without touching it. It fell away from his head. He'd been practicing removing the mask without collapsing, too, and he thought he was getting good at it. But this time he must have drawn too much, too quickly, because he fell flat on his belly. Mithra clattered from a nerveless hand, and he found himself with his nose almost in the pool of blood spreading from Urziah's corpse. Winner, Simon, son of Kalman, the voice announced. There was no applause, no sign of approval whatsoever, only endless silence. That was too close, Kayla admonished him. If he hadn't toyed with you, you'd be the one bleeding out on the stone. The blood was slowly edging even closer to Simon's face, and he wished he had the strength to edge back. Suddenly, the blood vanished. The body disappeared as though it had never been, leaving Simon and Kayla alone on the platform. I'd like to think there won't be a next time, Simon sent. Then he, too, vanished, leaving the stage drifting silent and empty in the void, as it always had.
The end of deathmatch number one, Simon vs. Urziah. Winner, Simon. Deathmatch two, Return of the Death. Iteration 000, Terminus. Match number two, The Emperor vs. The Incarnations. Someone was toying with him. The Emperor could count on one hand the number of entities capable of kidnapping him without his awareness, and they were all either sealed away or enduring the temporary suppression of death, which meant those sometime interlopers in white, those strangers from the heavens, had decided to meddle. For some reason, they'd chosen to seal him into a featureless room of gray stone. The heart of Nakothi was missing from around his neck, which gave him a moment of panic before he mastered himself. If they were powerful enough to take him from his world, they could handle the consequences of separating him from his soul-bound vessel. He would have to trust his own safety and security to the largesse of strangers, which had never set well with him. But making friends with these otherworldly protectors could have benefits for him and his entire world. If he made the necessary diplomatic overtures, they might take the great elders from his hands once and for all. A bell rang. Entertainment match, came a voice that pressed upon his reader's senses like a hurricane. There was a lifetime of intent compressed into the thought, controlled with such mastery that it communicated a message instead of melting his brain into a slurry. Whoever his kidnappers were, their mastery of reading dwarfed his own. It was a refreshing experience. He'd always been the teacher, never the student. Emperor of the Aurelian Empire, you will fight to the death. All consequences will be reversed. A tide of intent left him absolutely certain that he would be returned to the exact time and place from which he'd come with no memory, no injuries, and no penalties, regardless of how the match turned out. Overturning death was nothing to them. He was not accustomed to jealousy, either. You face, the voice began and then eight separate pulses of intent flowed into him one on top of the other, feeding him his eight individual targets. Naraka! Fire and oaths, a burning hellscape of law and punishment. Asphodel! A garden of mist, of deadly flowers and fog that devoured feeling. Tartarus! Twisting and interlocking chambers of steel, like a continent-sized clock. Ornheim! an endless cavern of whirling stone. Helgard, a tower, impossibly wide and inconceivably high, standing guard over the gates of winter. Lyriel, a gray wasteland with nine moons dancing overhead, their lights both concealing and revealing secrets. Avernus, a world with broad, open skies and a thousand flocks of birds to fill them. Endros, desert in one hand, jungle in the other, all blasted with the force of a thousand thunderstorms. The flow of intent ended, leaving him time to process the information. Indeed, it took him a moment to process his confusion. That couldn't be all of them. Whoever had summoned him here for this must like him. That, or they had no idea who he was. A bell rang again, shaking the tower. The emperor ran a hand over the silk draped loosely over his body. At least they had left him his own clothes. The bells ringing grew closer and closer together as his time ran out. When the voice said, Ready, 
He was already standing facing the wall where he knew a door would appear. Begin. He strode out the instant the chunk of wall vanished from in front of him, striding across the short stone bridge over the void. There were towers other than his own, spaced out across the edges of a vast arena. He couldn't make out those in the distance, but he assumed from the curving edge of the platform that it was likely a circle. He stopped as soon as he reached the area at the end of the bridge. His opponents were already waiting for him. He knew them on sight, thanks to the voice of his celestial abductors, but he didn't know where they came from. Naraka was a pile of ash the size of a bear loping close to him, raising a head-sized lump to display an eye of swirling fire. Asphodel was the silhouette of a tree, barely glimpsed through a silvery cloud. Tartarus, a clockwork golem of silver and copper. Ornheim, a young man with brown stone for skin and a flowing cape of sand. Helgard was a wolf with icy blue eyes that trailed snowflakes through the air as it moved. Lyriel, a woman with paper-white skin and glass shards for hair. Avernus, a brown bird the size of a horse with the head of a man. And Endros, a twisting mass of purple and green vines with lightning crackling between its leafy fronds. They crowded around each other, muscling one another out of the way, surrounding him in a half circle to keep his back against the void. The bridge leading back to his tower vanished, leaving him with no way out. He walked forward, snapping his sleeves out to straighten them. Naraka stood directly in front of him, heat pressing against his skin, its one eye focused on his face. Intent hung heavy in the air around it, so thick with judgment and desire for punishment that, in a world other than this one, he was sure it would awaken the ground with every step. The emperor strode forward, daring it to block his path. It did not. He brushed past the creature of ash and flame without a word, but the incarnations kept pace with him, keeping him encircled. They began to speak, shouting words at him that he ignored. He finally stopped when they ringed him completely. Best to deal with this all at once. You have set me to fight against creatures who warp the world around them with their very existence, the emperor said, folding his hands behind his back. This is the purpose for which I was born. He did not bother raising his voice. The audience for this contest could hear him. I failed to see the sport in setting a wolf upon the sheep. Endros was the first to act, its intent reeking of rage and predatory instincts. It collapsed upon him like a falling tree, limbs of bundled vines casting sparks. The emperor raised one hand and released his own intent. The sparks died, the monstrous blow hitting his open palm like a tuft of breeze-blown grass. Its strength faded as he willed it. He leaned closer to it, feeling the pride and fear warring in its soul as it struggled against him. Pathetic, he whispered, and punched through the branches serving as a ribcage. The lightning in the heart of Endros was fierce, but his will was stronger still. He gripped the central stalk at the back of the vine creature, the branch that served it as a spine, and he tore it free. The lightning and the essence of Endros's being came with it, and he willed that strength to stay in the branch. He awakened it with a wisp of thought before the intent could dissipate, and in less than a second he held a seven-foot staff of twisting, petrified vine, the whole length crawling with purple lightning. 
The rest of Endros collapsed into twigs and chaff. Naraka came next in a wave of ash and flame, but it was a feint. He felt Helgard approaching him, the wolf prepared to nip at his heels as an icy blade congealed into being. He slammed his staff onto the ground, directing its intent into the being of flame and judgment in front of him. A violent lightning bolt struck from the top of his staff, sending ash blasting in all directions, but the incarnation drew up a bowl of... He was prepared to call them flames, but they looked more like burning ghosts. They wailed at his reader's sense like prisoners trapped in a torture chamber, begging for release. The emperor reached out his second hand in a claw, tearing apart the force that held them together. The fireball exploded, the wailing intent turning in a rage on the one that had trapped it, the incarnation of Naraka. Naraka screamed in a chorus of voices as its power burned it from the inside out, but the emperor had already started to face a pair of new threats. Tartarus took one lumbering mechanical step forward, brandishing a bladed arm, and Lyriel called up burning stars in either hand. A blade of ice crashed in on him from behind. The hem of his robe whipped up of its own accord, stopping the blow in its tracks. Then the cloth swept out and slapped Helgard off the side of the arena. The frozen wolf wailed as it fell. A pair of white stars flashed from Lyriel, and the emperor caught them on the staff he spun in one hand. They reduced both ends of his staff to smoking, charred wood, but the stars burst without causing any damage. He tossed the staff aside to clap Tartarus's blade between his hands, stopping the giant's blow from reaching his head. He did not struggle against the strike. He willed the clockwork man to be weaker, and it was so. I was in need of a weapon, the emperor said, and sent his intent flowing into the steel giant's arm. It rusted over, and he tore the blade from its wrist with hardly an effort. The Empire is grateful for your contribution. With a flat of the broad, cleaver-like blade, he slapped the next star from Lyriel aside. It ricocheted from the mirrored surface, nearly catching the Lyriel incarnation in the face. She had to stumble aside, which gave him enough time to awaken his new sword. Its grip transformed from a severed, rusty wrist to a proper grip, its blade growing smoother, longer, and sharper. He gave Tartarus an up-close look at his improvements as he gutted it from crotch to skull. Gears and red-hot bars tumbled out, and the metal giant tumbled to the ground. The emperor spun out of the way, slapping another lyrial star aside, even as he scooped up one of the bars with a heated end. He threw it one-handed at Lyriel, his intent making it a deadly missile. She called up a glass barrier, but powered by the Emperor, the molten bar was unstoppable. It blasted through her shield and drove a smoldering hole in her chest. Intent swirled around him in the mist, even as a song crooned through the silence of the battlefield. The shadow of a tree loomed in the distance, a bird circling overhead. Asphodel and Avernus, a psychic attack. His reader's senses opened of their own volition, taking him into a reading trance. The great elders strode through the wreckage of the capital, raising incomprehensible limbs to the sky. The people screamed as their city burned, and the emperor knew his long work had failed. It had all been for nothing. In the end, everything he'd done had fallen before his enemies. The only escape from his despair would be his own death, 
He could see it, looming before him like a welcome shadow, and part of him longed for it. The emperor laughed. He laughed deeply from the belly as he hadn't in years, nearly doubling over with the hilarious irony of it all. The psychic attack faltered, then redoubled in weight. He caught his breath, wiping tears from his eyes. Ah, you think you can cause my will to falter? Ugnot could teach you a lesson in true misery. The emperor locked onto the sources of the mental disruption. But in his absence, I will show you myself. His intent lashed out. Despair, the emperor commanded, and the mist flew back. Asphodel was frozen, a tree with a rainbow of colored leaves, its mind paralyzed. Bright leaves drifted from branches one by one, and then a bushel at a time as the incarnation shriveled on the spot. Mist flowed from its wounds like silver blood. A heart-wrenching cry came from overhead, and Avernus dove over the edge of the arena. Its cries lasted a long time before they finally vanished. Grasping his sword, the emperor faced his final opponent, the young man with skin of stone and a cape of living sand, Ornheim. We acted too soon, the man of rock said gravely. We should have waited until we knew your capabilities. The emperor shook his head at the foolishness. No, when you learned that you were facing me, you should have bowed. He invested that last word with the full force of his intent, and the incarnation collapsed to his knees. With one final stroke of his sword, the emperor finished him. The end of deathmatch number two, the emperor versus the incarnations. Winner, emperor. Congratulations, you've survived the Hidden Gnome Podcast. Today's stories were The Death Matches by Will White, read by Travis Baldry. Listen in next week on Tuesday, June 30th, and Friday, July 3rd, for special editions of the Hidden Gnome Podcast before we return to our regularly scheduled programming the following week. Until that time, remember, unicorns are real. Horses are not real. <laughs>